Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, we have a very special guest. It is Georgetown lecturer Matt Glassman, our winner of my platinum hand competition where he wrote an award-winning essay on the beauty of home games to win that platinum pass worth $30,000, including a 25K ticket to the PokerStars Players Championships. As a kid, I saw firsthand how home games could forge community and friendship. My mother played one with her pals Bojo, Toshi, Sam, Joel, Bob Boritz every Saturday until she died one decade ago in January 2013. I'll never forget the boisterous laughter that thundered upstairs to my room when they played at our place. Today, we have Matt Glassman to ask him a couple of questions about his day job, about his inspiration for this lovely essay, and for his preparation as he heads off to a $25,000 tournament, the Poker Stars Players Championships at the Bahamar Resort in the Bahamas. But first, Matt himself will read out loud his $30,000 essay, Jack Three Offsuit and the Monster Ballads. Some low-stakes home games become larger than life. No rhyme or reason, just a realization. Holy smokes, we built something really special here. The sweet spot of competition and laughter and friendship that fuels daydreams and memories. And a grin that appears when you exit your life and show up on Thursday night. I've been a regular in dozens of home games over the years. Serious, casual, cerebral, goofy, low stakes, high stakes, soft, tough, family, friends, co-workers, strangers, even future pros. I built three games that made the magical leap, but have never loved one as much as the Monster Ballads game. Just one of those games. Came together a year before the boom, firmly grounded in the old aesthetic. Dealer's choice, spread limit, max bet $2. Plastic chips, a rickety octagon Kestel table. Stud high-low declare, the Queen, Chicago. It persisted through the boom, an early nostalgic oasis from it, old school despite not being old. I was playing a lot of 1020 stud at Foxwoods at the time, and another more serious home game, plus duplicate bridge a couple nights a week. Down the rabbit hole and loving it, poker stars in my eyes, but nothing compared to Thursday night. It wasn't about the lunch money I might win or lose. Heck, it wasn't about the cards. Never is. I mostly remember the atmospherics, the dingy apartments of our 20s, the Schaefer beer and flavor-blasted Snyder's pretzels, the bizarre obsession with $2 bills, the slow rolls allowed in certain spots according to complex norms, the Monster Ballad CD on endless loop, and of course, the guys. T-Pep, 8-Pack, Piazza Doodle, Charles, Kerm, Doc, Tam, true characters up and down the lineup. You already know them. The lovable loser, the tellbox, the postmortem coach, the guy who knows 11 ways to say check, the one who makes the same six jokes every week. Moods and personalities that correlated with playing styles. A few of them halfway down the rabbit hole, but mostly just kitchen table players. A dozen guys stuck somewhere after college, but before the real world. Relationships, breakups, grad school, jobs, careers. It all spilled out in the cracks between the laughter and the beats. Despite what you hear, a poker game is actually a great place to have serious conversations. Maybe because they seem less serious. The game was six months old when we stapled a $6 No Limit Hold'em tournament to the front of it. 
None of us had ever played Hold'em except for Piazza Doodle, but we'd seen Rounders and saw Varconi beat Gardner on ESPN, so why not? In 2002, the rush of betting it all was brand new, and the tourney format made it less scary to do so. It was an immediate hit. 7 p.m. tournament on the Kestel, old school dealer's choice cash at the kitchen table as soon as three people busted. Fueled by the boom and the competitive fun of tournaments, we quickly added an annual club championship, and then a mid-season holiday tournament too. $20 affairs that took all evening. Memorialized with engraved gold winner's plaques, we'd screw onto the edge of the Kestel. Permanent reminders of who had won the club each year. These championships were tense events. We'd look forward to them for weeks. The money was meaningless, but everybody wanted a plaque. One good run of cards could wash away a year of bad results and leave a lasting physical badge. And at least for one night, the normal clowning around disappeared. Like every good home game, we had an array of ridiculous inside jokes. Jargon and habits and rules and behaviors that would dizzy the newcomers who passed through. Like saying yabba dabba doo to mean raise. Or making a big production about dragging pots all the way into your trip tray just to make that noise. Or Doc slowly turning his visor around as he grabbed the cards for his deal, a knowing roar exploding from the table. One night, Charles jammed the river in the tournament. The board read King King Ace 9 6. No flush possible. T Pep folded, flashing an ace. What'd you have there, Charles? Jack 3 offsuit, Haas. Two weeks later, everyone was claiming they had Jack 3 offsuit whenever they took down a pot. Two weeks after that, people started playing Jack 3 offsuit whenever it was dealt to them. Naturally, you had to play it aggressively. How else were you going to win uncontested and get to proudly table it? Even T Pep, the tightest player in our game, started doing it. His three betting range was literally aces, kings, and Jack 3 offsuit. Not that we knew what a three better range was. Tournament flops would come ace-jack three, and instantly you'd hear, bottom two for me again. Someone else would chime in, bullshit, you didn't raise before the flop. In the cash game, people started calling stuff like, roll your own, jacks and threes wild. The occasional new players who passed through the club were always amused, but rarely surprised. Most low-stakes home games have a jack three offsuit. Call me a true believer. I was a serious player, but I knew jack three offsuit was the glue that held these games together. I dutifully played at full throttle, always. Raise, three bet, four bet jam. I mean, you couldn't lose. Either you took it down and got to table it, or you got called and you got to table it. Hero or hero. On the perfect night, you'd flop huge with it and get to show it down. My dream was to make jacks full of threes in Chicago, rivering the jack of spades to scoop the pot. Years passed. Poker exploded. The stud games at Foxwoods dried up, replaced at first by an endless sea of $3, $6 limit hold'em tables, then $2 no-limit hold'em tables. No-limit cash games sprung up around town, and I joined one. I started playing online. I saddled my way into the World Series of Poker main event one year. Through it all, the Monster Battles poker game thrived. Thursday nights a fixture on my calendar. A missed week, devastating. New players came and went, as did jokes and jargon. The Kestel filled up with championship plaques. I even won a few. Yabba-dabba-doo. The 2006 club championship was in the community room at Doc's townhouse complex. We had a steak barbecue beforehand, everyone nervously chatting. Ten players, all of whom had been with the club since the beginning. Things were changing. A bunch of us had gotten married. Club trips to AC for poker bachelor parties, of course. And a few of us were imminently leaving town for new jobs in new cities. It wasn't over yet, but the writing was on the wall. The game was not going to go on forever. I could say I played well that night. 
but I really just luckboxed my way to the final two. Aces versus kings in an early level to double up, and then a flush on the turn in a pot I didn't belong in, and next thing you know I'm bullying people on the bubble. And suddenly it's just me and Charles and $200 on the table and a plaque with one of our names on it and a year's bragging rights up for grabs. Everyone else crowded around watching. 20 minutes later, I've got 30 big blinds in front of me, covering Charles, but not by much. I'm in the big blind and I take a peek. Jack three, off suit, whoa. Charles min raises his button and suddenly I'm in the tank, a bizarre tank. It's one thing to floor the Jack three accelerator in a random Thursday tourney. This is decidedly not some random Thursday. It would be the coup of the decade to triple barrel Jack three and get away with it for most of the championship chips. But I'm almost throwing up thinking about losing the title on a play like this. After a minute, I decide I can play it aggressively but still bail out if things get sticky. It's a dumb compromise and I know it. I three bet the six bigs, hoping to just take it down and flex when I reveal my hand. But Charles calls, here we go. The flop comes ace, eight, four, rainbow. The SPR is right around two. I see bet half pot, now just praying to end the hand. Charles thinks and calls. The turn is another ace. Now Charles perks up and smiles. You gonna bluff at it again, Haas? I'm strongly considering it. This is the moment of truth. If I just jam here, Jack three is going face up on the table, one way or another. Hero or hero. Charles obviously has something, but if it's not an ace, he's not gonna call. Strictly on the poker, I'm in the dumbest possible spot imaginable. But in the context of the last five years, this is the culmination of the entire Monster Battles poker game. But I chicken out. I gently tap the table to check. Charles immediately moves all in. I Hollywood for 10 or 15 seconds, mostly thinking about whether to show the Jack 3 when I fold. I decide not to, knowing they'll skewer me for playing it like a wimp. The Jack and the 3 float anonymously into the muck. To everyone else, it's just another hand. Did you have it, I ask? But I already know the answer. Charles smiles. Jack three off, buddy. Four or five hands later, I jam my short stack and lose a flip. Charles is the club champion. That was the last Monster Battles club championship. You never know when a poker game is going to fall apart. People move, people get busy, the game goes less and less often, and then it's just gone. I've played in a lot of different low stakes games since then. Two became something special. One ran for a decade. Ten club championships. A million jokes. Even had a rickety old Kestel table, plaques screwed into it. And of course it had its own signature hand, 10-4. It fell apart in 2020, a victim of COVID. The other was a PokerStars home game club I put together the first week of the pandemic. I figured a dozen people might play for six weeks. Almost three years later, we've got 80 players in the club and have played over 130 weekly tournaments. Our third club championship is this Thursday night. The signature hand is 9-4 offsuit. I have no idea why, but everybody plays it. In November of 2020, during the height of the pandemic, I got a group email from Charles. Let's put together an online reunion of the Monster Ballads game. Within minutes, half a dozen people had enthusiastically responded, and a game was set. Almost 15 years had passed, but immediately we assumed our old roles in the game and fell into our old rhythms. It was beautiful and surreal, like reviving someone who died long ago. Life had intervened and there was a lot to catch up on. Marriages, kids, careers. Bizarrely, the little jokes people remembered from the game only partially overlapped. Everyone knew a different 40% of the canon. The game had evidently affected people in all different ways. 
I even got some blank stares when I called out top and bottom on a jack a3 flop. I was surprised, but perhaps I shouldn't have been. It was never really about the cards. Thank you so much, Matt, for that riveting reading. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing this? How long did it take you and when did you come up with the idea? I think it was on your podcast. I heard you were doing the contest. When I heard about the contest, like, well, I'm definitely going to enter that because I, I like writing and, uh, you know, I've done lots of blogging in, in lots of capacities in my life. I was like, I'm definitely going to do this. And then it took a while to sort of think about what hand to do and sort of I was thinking strategically about the contest because, you know, the first thing I thought of was like, well, do I have a great hand in and of itself sort of in my life? And I thought of a couple, but then really like my sense of the contest was that like a lot of people you can, you know, you can pick a hand history that's really cool, but a million people have cool hand histories, but really it was like, Give me the story surrounding the hand history that was more important. And that's when it dawned on me. I was like, oh, my God, I got to do Jack 3 and uh, and build it around sort of the idea of these low stakes home games that have been so important to me in my life. And then it sort of just flowed from there. It probably took me like, you know, I don't know, an hour and a half to write an initial draft, which was terrible. I could pull it out if you want to see it. But then then it was more about sort of building sort of what themes I wanted in the story beyond the actual hand, because the actual hand in my story is is only meaningful if you understand sort of the what, what was going on and, and getting into that world of the low stakes home game that I love so much. And that was the hard part. Like when I entered the contest and I submitted it, I was like, well, I mean, I know this is a, is a great story if I conveyed it well. I think I think I've got a really good story here, but whether it resonates with people. I had no idea. Um, I was way too close to it, both as a writer and as someone who had lived that game. My goal really was to sort of encase the the hand itself inside this world of, of a low stakes home game from my 20s, which is something I think a lot of people can relate to if you convey it well. Um, or, you know, at some point in their life, I think everyone has played sort of low stakes home game poker at some point, or at least people of my age have. Um, for many people, it's how they, they fell in love with card games was, was home games. And that was certainly true for me. I love how there's actually a specific hand where you have Jack three, but then it's also the overarching theme of the piece. Now, did your opponent really have Jack three as well in that hand? He did, definitely didn't show, right? No, no. And, and he definitely didn't have it. You know, once you write a piece like that, and then like, especially when I became a finalist, I was like reading it over again. And I was like cringing because there were so many, you know, obviously like, now, now I'm a great editor all of a sudden, right? When I'm looking back at it critically. And uh, that was one thing I wished I could have improved. And I, in the live read I just did, I actually did change it. I, I say, did you have it? I asked, but I already know the answer. And had I included that in the original piece, I think it would have given it more of a sense that Charles was simply going to tell me Jack three offsuit, no matter what he actually held. My father-in-law said the same thing. He's like, I can't believe he had the same hand you had. And I was like, oh, that, no, he didn't. Um, it definitely wasn't my intention to convey that in the story. It was just, you know, it was at that point in the, in the Monster Ballads game, Anytime you said, did you have it? Someone's going to say, well, I had Jack three, right? Like, what'd you have there? Jack three. And so, you know, even me asking that at the time was kind of like a sort of like a, a blunder within the game because I, I wasn't going to get a serious answer at that point. After the game, after that championship, he, Charles and I were probably walking home and I, he probably told me what he actually had, but I don't remember. Oh, no, no, no. It's okay. I like that. I thought that was good because I, it was like kind of clear that he that he probably you know he might have been lying he probably didn't have it but who knows i mean it is an offsuit hand so there are a lot well, of comments I mean, on it. yeah from a bayesian point of view i guarantee if charles had jack three there we would have seen it on the table ah. as soon as i folded so there's no sort of like yes. the conditional probability is zero because we would have seen it like you, you didn't like win a hand with jack three in that game and not show it so he definitely didn't have it it's funny how jack three became such an epic well, Jack three became a really important hand this year because of yeah. the yeah. Jack four hand and all of the right. speculation immediately in this epic hand between Robbie and Garrett Adelstein that caused so much controversy. 
a lot of the opinions kind of coming out immediately after the hand were that she uh, thought she had Jack three off and not Jack four off. So that did that kind of occur to you as well while you were writing this? There was a draft at one point of the story. I mean, not, I mean, when I say a draft, I mean, I had a sentence written at one point that alluded to sort of the current controversy. And I, and I took it out because I decided I wanted to sort of place the story in much more of a haze. And it comes back to the real world at the end of the story when when we have that sort of reunion game in 2020. But I didn't want it in the beginning of the story, put it into a context of today. And so I took it out. But I was thinking about that because it is sort of absurd. And when that famous hand from this year came up and people were saying she had Jack three, uh, you know, I, I would just laugh every time I heard it. <laughs> Jack three means nothing to anyone in the world of poker, except it means something to me. <laughs> and, you know, 12 guys I played poker with 20 years ago, right? Then you were like, of course, it would make sense for her to call in that situation. Right. Doing more, she should be playing more aggressively in reality. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, you play a card game, even even not just like a hand of poker, but there's there's certain card games, a lot of the bridge derivatives that have special cards. There was a game I played with when, when, I, when I was a kid that the Jack of Spades was the key card. And to this day, anytime I see the Jack of Spades, you know, the first card I get in a poker hand, or if I'm playing bridge, I'm dealt the Jack of Spades, instantly I'm like, oh, wow, that's a powerful card. And it just sort of sticks with you no matter where you are when you see a deck of cards. And I, I kind of feel that way about Jack 3, and uh, even more so now viscerally about 9-4 offsuit, which is sort of the signature hand of the current home game I play in that people play constantly and just for fun. And so it, it is the things where you can trigger these memories even if you see it out of context. And that definitely happened to me when the when that Jack forehand came up this year. Why do you think all these like special hands, they kind of have very similar properties that they're they're really weak, but they're also nondescript and that yeah. they're not the weakest hands like three deuce off and seven deuce off, which are kind of like the iconic hands that are used for a lot of games um, for like bonuses, right? Seven deuce especially. But why do you think it's uh, hands like Jack 3, 10, 4, 9, 4 that always kind of like hold this uh, esteem in, in small home games? They're so random, right? Like seven deuce is too famous um, for any of to be the case. And, and the things that are smaller than seven deuce all of a sudden can make straights a lot of them, right? And so they have some potential. Like nine fours is a terrible hand no matter how you cut it. Awful, right? And so when someone wants to, you know, either pretend they had something good, they're going to name probably a hand that can't make a straight is offsuit, right? And doesn't have two wheel cards. Like you could say four deuce, but that actually has some potential compared to nine four to make sort of a really powerful hand um, where you're, you know, a hand like nine four or jack three, like, yes, it can make a full house, but any two cards can make a full house, but you're not making sort of a drawing hand with jack three, right? These hands become sort of special either because someone just makes them up and starts talking about them. And that happened in a couple of my games or because someone who doesn't belong in a pot and is just pulling a fast one on someone for God knows what reason actually wins a hand with it. Right. And that gives it sort of a notoriety in the game that can launch these things. I remember the Jack three incident because I remember very clearly Charles making up that he had it when he had won that pot, you know, years earlier. But with 10-4 and 9-4, and my other two home games that had sort of these signature hands, I have no idea where they came from. But it just started happening, right? The flop would come 10-4 deuce and someone would be like, yes, top two again, right? In some ways, it's like the worst running joke you can imagine. But then it just becomes sort of endearing to people. And, and the real flip is when people start playing the hands. Like joking about it is one thing, but it's when people start then deciding they're going to play those hands. And usually they start playing them just so they can three bet someone off a, a reasonably good hand and then turn over this, this garbage hand. And it becomes sort of like a just a little competitive mini play within the game. And the, you know the funny thing I always think about is the tightest player in our Monster Ballads game, Tom, T-Pep in the story, like his three bet range literally was aces, kings, and jack three offsuit. And like, 
that's not the worst thing in the world now, if you think about it, right? It gets him to mix in some bluffs, right? Especially if he's also three-batting ace-king. All of a sudden, like, it looks a little bit more like a balanced range. In fact, it's probably better overall than just having aces and kings be your three-bet range, um, which I think is hilarious. I mean, a lot of people now will use ace-five suited or whatever in that spot. But to use jack three in 2005 probably got you more calls of your three bets than he otherwise would have, which I think is sort of like a nice code of the story all these years later. At least that way, people would be afraid that if you did have the jack three, they they would be embarrassed. So they had to pay him off when he had the aces or kings. Yeah, the, the same thing can happen in a in a in a three bet pot or if the flop came nine three three. Like all of a sudden, so you have your kings or whatever, but now you're like, oh, or you have you know you have an overpair, you have jacks. It's like. Well, this person could have you beat with aces. They could have you beat with kings. They could also have jack three and have trips here and just like drawing, you know. And so that sort of stuff does have sort of those second order effects where it gives you just a little bit of a of a bluff side to your range there, which is not anything anyone was thinking about in 2005, except maybe implicitly like oh, worrying that they had jack three. You know, it brings me to my next question about what what are the elements of a good home game? The one that, as you put in in your in your piece, makes that magical leap to the sweet spot of competition and laughter and friendship that fuels daydreams and memories and keeps you waiting for the next Thursday night. What do you think are some of the things that the three that you've said made that magical leap have in common? For me, at least, and all the ones I've been a part of, one of the keys is that it actually has to be a competitive card game, right? Um, sometimes people are playing and it's really just goofy. The way we usually make card games competitive is we raise the stakes enough so that it hurts if you lose. But the other way to get there is just get people who want to play a competitive card game. Like the thing I love to say about all the games that I played in that were great is that they were much tougher games than the stakes indicated. The game I have now that I think would, would qualify as making the magical leap is actually an oh hell game. But it, you know, it might be one of the toughest oh hell games I could possibly imagine. Just people who are unbelievably interested and good at this game and love it, but we're playing for a dollar a point. So maybe you win 30 bucks if you have a good night, right? It's not about the money. Right? The money's there, but it's sort of a sidelight. The competition is important. But the second is, I think people have to come to it with the right attitude. I always thought like when you can combine that unbelievable competition with a lightheartedness where no one's, when people are laughing when things go terribly, right? Or, or, or you can laugh at someone who takes a horrible beat and they can laugh at themselves, right? And, and people have a good natured ability to rib each other. I think the needling is a huge part of it, right? And it has to be sort of a set of friends or a set of people who are comfortable with that. Right. Who can, you know, just be the, the you know, in a lovable loser spot and everyone's just like absolutely dumping on them about it. And they can just sort of laugh it off and, and get into that sort of banter. But I, but I also think it has to be a space where people feel sort of comfortable with each other. And as, like I wrote in the piece and have serious conversations. Um, one of the things that like is sort of just a stereotype of card games is like never have a serious conversation. Right? Like don't don't go play dollar three dollar at MGM and try to have a conversation about politics. You'll want to just throw yourself into the river. But I don't actually think that's true at home games. And I think I think the best home games become places where people feel so comfortable with the other people there that they can bring up things that are actually are serious and actually have conversations that are meaningful to them at a human level. And uh, and and so none of this is sort of an answer to your question. I, I just you just know it when you see it. You want to show up to the game. And like as soon as the game gets canceled for the week, your just stomach drops. Right. Or when you get the fifth player who can make the game happen, your eyes light up. I don't know. I guess that's the best answer I can do. I, I it was everyone knows these games, and and I and I know lots of home games that are fun that aren't these games, right? Where you show up and you enjoy playing the poker, but it's just not this game, right? It's not that game where where everything is just constructed so perfectly, and 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 it has these friendships and this laughter and this intense competition, which I think for for me and and my friends I played in has always been a big part of it. 
And I think also what came through in your piece is that humor, private jokes, inside jokes is also commonality between the games that kind of last. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I it's hard to it's hard to sustain a game that doesn't become its own thing. If it's just a different poker game you could choose in town, you know, there's I mean, in my right my neighborhood where I live, you know, there's six or seven home games I've played in. Um, and, and the ones you want to keep going back to are the ones that that become a place where you have these sort of shared memories and inside jokes, right? And and things that are funny. Like there's there's a there's a guy. You know, there's a guy in my Oh Hell group right now, and he's always wearing track suits to the game, right? As, as if he's some sort of like AC poker pro from the 1990s or whatever. And it's just hilarious. And it's like Dennis is in his track suit. And like, and he's constantly buying new track suits. You're getting a new track suit for Christmas and showing up for people. People love it and they rave about it. And it's such a silly thing, like Dennis in his track suits, but it makes everyone smile and everyone laugh. Um, and it becomes sort of part of the game. And, you know, if Dennis shows up and instead he's just got like a, you know, a T-shirt on that, you know, like a poker T-shirt or something, some, some like no tracksuit, you need to leave Dennis, go get a tracksuit, go put one on. And that probably sounds so silly. Like, as I say it out loud, I'm like, Chad must be like, this is ridiculous, right? But it's one of those things, a feature of our game. And there's, you know, 200 features like that in the game um, that become sort of the personalization of the game. Whereas if you show up anonymously and go sit at a, either a home game or down at, you know, MGM in, in, in DC, you wouldn't feel that. And you'd feel sort of empty about it and cold. It's just funny. I was laughing because of the poker stars pro Spraggy is also famous for his tracksuits. I also think the jargon is really important. And every game sort of develops its its own jargon. But it is sort of daunting to walk into a home game that's been established and sit down and realize you don't know a lot of the language that's going on. And that's usually a sign that it's a pretty good game among friends and uh, that, that they are speaking almost in a code. And they're all laughing at the code. I, you know, I don't have any sort of background in in sociology or anything like that. But I, I'm sure that these sort of shared inside jokes and, and pieces of language and jargon are a lot about what people love about these things. Just it's, it's, it's something that they can call their own, that they have ownership over. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, I think a lot about why No Lama Hold'em is so popular. And it sounds like you really play a lot of other games. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one thing that I constantly come back to is how it's just like this balance between math and reading people that, you know, it kind of privileges both types of skills. And also from like, kind of like a more negative side, but also true. I feel like No Limit Hold'em's not a game that's as easy to cheat effectively in as other games. So that's probably pretty good as well. Obviously, we know that cheating is possible. For instance, being able to like see, you know, communicate what one of your whole cards is if you fold might be more important in other games than in No Limit Hold'em. Like the cheatability is not that great and it rewards different kinds of skills. But the biggest negative for it is it sometimes doesn't give enough action, right? You can win a lot just by being really tight. So I think, you know, adding games like eight deuce off and seven deuce off and nine four off, it, it kind of feels like a natural progression, right, yeah. of the game. I've never been a fan of No Limit Hold'em as a home game. I, I actually think that it has significant problems as a low stake hold home game. And I think home games have been degraded over the last 20 years because of it. Now, part of that is I grew up prior to the boom playing the stud based home games. But I, I do think that no Limit has a couple of problems. One is that the correct strategy is pretty boring. And people at home games typically don't come to home games to fold. Low stakes home games, like people aren't there to sort of like just watch and maximize their profit exclusively. They want to play. They want to enjoy the game. And so I, I think that finding ways to, you know, uh, shake up No Limit Hold'em is, is one strategy. The other is trying to get people to play games that aren't No Limit Hold'em. Because the other problem with No Limit Hold'em is you can lose too much too fast, I think, for a home game. I think the variance of No Limit Hold'em is actually probably lower 
than a lot of the stud-based limit hold'em game or limit stud type games. But people don't like the idea of going to a home game saying, well, I brought 50 bucks and that's two buy-ins or whatever. And as soon as that's gone, I got to leave. And then 30 minutes later, it's gone. And what are they going to do now, right? And so I've always tried to encourage home games, particularly with people who didn't start playing poker till after the boom, to add add some other things to it. Like I finally convinced my uh, my regular neighborhood home game died during the pandemic to go half and half, 30 minutes, no limit hold them, and then 30 minutes, limit seven card stud, high-low declare, which I think is the greatest of all the home games. It generates a ton of action. It has both sort of like the mathematical side of stud, but then the pure psychology of the declare element. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, seven stud high-low is, if you're familiar with seven card stud, right, you start with two down and one up, and then each person's eventually going to have four up with a betting round between, and then they're going to get a last river card face down, that's seven card stud. And in high-low, the high hand splits with the low hand. And so the low hand is usually 64 rules. Um, Ace, two, three, four, six would be the low. And that would split the pot with the high hand at the end. But Declare, which is a classic sort of home game technique, says after the river betting round, after 7th Street is bet, you don't just turn over your cards. It's not card speed. Everyone who's still in the hand at showdown either puts no chips in their hand, one chip in their hand, or two chips in their hand, and they hold them out and sort of turn them over simultaneously. And if you're going low, you put no chips in your hand. If you're going high, you put one chip in your hand. If you're going both, you put two. But you can only win the pot the way you go. You can only win the pot the way you go. And so a lot of the psychology of the game is figuring out if everyone else left is going the same way. That doesn't matter what your cards are. You just go the other way. And so you see a lot of people who play that game in a very sort of psychological way, in a reading way that has nothing to do with the cards. Because uh, you get a scary board, right? You get three three low cards face up or four, you know, four low cards face up. You don't care what your cards are. You just keep betting the max and go low, knowing that anyone else who's sticking around is probably contesting the high side of the pot. Uh, but that game has a lot of sort of the mix of things you want in a home game. It's a limit game with tons of action uh, that has both sort of very mathematical side in, in playing the seven stud high low, but also a very psychological side in playing the Claire. Like I had a buddy, I had a buddy in high school who like was a master of like literally looking at someone's closed fist and deciding how many chips are in it, right? That's a skill that like, has nothing to do with the card game or even probably should have anything to do with the card game. But you can really look at your fist and just the way you were clenching it, decide if you had no chips in there. And if you had, you know, that, and, and he would use that as an edge to go low and put no chips in his hand. So the idea is that you could not have a low hand at all, but if you declared low and no one else did, you would win half the pot. Happens all the time where people just have, you know, their board face up and stud is, three, four, five, seven, or whatever. And then what they actually have is three pair or whatever. And they never made a low. They're the low as a pair. And these go low because you're playing your board. And that's pretty common in seven card stud. That's something that a lot of Hold'em players aren't used to is that in stud, you're playing your own board. Everyone has their own cards. And so sort of, uh, it's a lot easier to superficially represent something you have that you don't have anything close to, right? Because people can build a story based on what your cards look like right in front of you. And that sounds like fun. Definitely. And I see, you know, you have a bridge background. So the kind of concept of auctioning and declaring is probably compelling. I definitely grew up not in the poker poker side of things. My dad was a pretty good poker player. Like we had biggest game in town at the house and seven card stuff for advanced players, but we mostly played the the bridge derivatives. My parents played a little bridge. I ended up playing a lot more than either of them did, but all the games that are sort of the tricks and trumps games that come from bridge, like Oh Hell and Catch a 10 and Pitch and Whist and those sort of things, Scat. Uh, that that we played growing up just as family parlor games was really how I fell in love with card games. Like I, I, I still don't really think of poker as a card game. I think of it as a gambling game played with cards. Whereas I think of the bridge games as the real card games, games that you can enjoy on the cards without betting on them at all, right? The, the beauty of them lies in the actual card play, not necessarily in the, uh, in the, in the ability to win chips or money. As a chess player, I, that game 
is intrinsically interesting. Whereas in poker, part of the point because of the different increments of betting is that you need to be playing for money or at least you need to um, want the high score enough. You can play for play money and make it interesting, but play money then has to matter to you for whatever reason. This really comes up a lot when you're trying to teach kids cards games, because lots of lots of people have asked me, like, how do you get your kids started on games? Because, you know, I grew up in a big gaming family and like and, and, and I want my kids to play lots of games. And we do. But like, it's really hard to start kids on poker because it's like, you know, it's, it's not like a love of cards that takes you to poker. Right. And also, like, kids don't right, fold. So bluffing really goes out the window. And it's like not that much fun to teach someone to value bet effectively. And so I always tell people to start kids on on the other kinds of card games and get them to love card games um, before they start thinking about uh, things like poker. So I always start kids on on the simple tricks and trumps types games or on like even more simple stuff, right? Like slapjack and authors and and the stuff that is truly kids games, but adults who are competitive can have fun with like spit, right? Played so much like speed and spit with my um with my neighborhood friends growing up. And that's just like a silly speed, you know, how fast can you do something in cards, right? But that's what makes people love those things. And I think that's probably prior to poker. Interesting. Yeah, I try to teach my, my son a little poker, but yeah, no limit hold'em is impossible to teach a youngster. So we, we usually like he kind of likes five card draw. And yes. uh, I think Chinese poker formats are probably pretty good for kids as well to learn. I think this is kind of a beautiful thing about childhood. A lot of times they don't understand money and understand like the increments and like all that stuff. It's nice to keep it a little bit pure. I agree. So your your day job is a senior fellow at the Georgetown Affairs Institute, which is an educational organization focused on Congress. So, wow, this must be a really crazy time for you. This is January 10th, 2023 that we're recording this episode. Time for vacation, huh? Yeah, completely time for vacation. I like I was I was so happy that they finally elected a speaker on Friday because I was thinking, you know, any more days of this like today, you know, this week I was going to I was going to lose it. I was I was like glued to sort of television and talking to reporters and talking to people. And, and that, that really hit the sort of con- contestation of the speakership in, in the House, hit my exact wheelhouse because my my two expertise is in sort of congressional procedure and operations. And so I was sort of <laughs> on a very small list of people that um, sort of understood the the rules in a way that, that reporters want to talk to them or, or, or understand it. And so not only was it very exciting for me because I'm interested in it, but it was a ton of time spent working on it. You know, it's funny. I talked to a couple of poker media people about PSPC. They didn't see sort of like a connection between politics and, and, and card games or games. But I, I think just the opposite. Right. I think politics and poker have so much in common and, and both sort of exist in these sort of rules based environments where strategy is derivative of sort of understanding rules, but also understanding people. And I think it makes sort of congressional politics and legislative politics actually pretty easy to analyze in the same way we think about poker with with a set of rules and an institution and a set of actors trying to maximize their goals. Often in a, you know, in politics, it's not a zero sum environment, but it's game theoretic. Um, and, and what you do is in response to what other people think are going to do. And, and, and knowing the rules is huge. Um, you know, you sit down and play a card game or any board game with people. And the first thing they're going to say is like, what are the rules? And I see a lot of people come trying to analyze politics. And that's not the first question they ask, but it should be. They don't sort of like think about the rules. Right. And and I spend like, you know, an obsessive amount of time thinking about the rules, just like anyone who's playing poker does. Right. You want to know, like if I give you a poker hand, I said, you know, I've got Jack 10 in, in the cutoff and I should raise. Well, you'd say I don't have enough information. Right. Like what are the blinds? What's the situation? Right. How deep's your stack? 
right? Even what game are you playing? But a lot of people will look at political situations um, just as observers and say, I don't understand what's going on here. Like I would never do that without sort of being able to see the big picture of how the strategy fits into sort of the constraints put on political actors and politicians. And I think if you want to sort of analyze someone's strategy, you have to understand their motivations, right? And we make this mistake in card games too sometimes, I think. We just assume everyone's there to win, right? And they're just trying to maximize profits. But in my experience, a lot of people aren't at card games to maximize profits. That's not their main motivation. And so the same thing can happen in politics, right? We look at people who are running for president, right? And we say, why are they doing what they're doing? And it's like, well, one reason to run for president is try and be president of the United States. But there's a lot of reasons to run for president, right? Just like there's a lot of reasons to sit down on a card game. And most of the people running for president probably aren't actually trying to become president, right? They want to be secretary of state, right? Or they're trying to improve their standing uh, in the political party, or they just want to sell books, right? And appear on TV, or it's an ego thing. And so understanding people's motivations, I think is something that's really common to poker and politics. If you want to sort of uh, maximize either your analytical ability or your ability to sort of play against them. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. Thank you for that. And which Congress members would be good at poker? Huh, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, I I suspect if if the skills translated that some of the leaders like Pelosi would be very good at it. Pelosi is someone who thinks intently about sort of the incentives and the long-term strategies and not just sort of the results-oriented uh, outcomes. You see this a lot in politics. A bad political observer is someone who looks at the results of an election and decides that the winning campaign did everything right and the losing campaign did everything wrong. And that's the equivalent of being results-oriented about a hand of cards, right? The, the marginal impact of what your campaign did only has like a slight correlation to the outcome of the election. But uh, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of the people in Congress who are very sort of nuanced about the rules and thinking through the strategies on the floor and how to use those rules to maximize advantage are, are doing the equivalent of sort of EV maximization in Congress, where a lot of members of Congress aren't that interested in the rules, right? And they're more interested in sort of just the substantive policies, which is fine too, but it's a different approach. And it's not an approach that I think would be you know good at politics. So when I see a member of Congress or, or staffers who really think hard about their procedural strategy in Congress, I think, ah, there's a potentially good card player. Is there a place where you where you recommend people like a book or a resource um, at your institute where you recommend like lay people to read up on this stuff, even if they're not, you know, Georgetown students or? Yeah, sure. One place I could start on uh, is 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 my blog where I write stuff. I have a Substack, MacLassman.substack.com, where I constantly try to. I mean, one of the things I think I have a comparative advantage about is sort of explaining legislative politics in particular, but American politics generally to sort of people who aren't well versed in it or not in that world. And part of that is because I think about politics sometimes like a poker player. Um, and I think I certainly can help poker players understand politics better because I sometimes use the language of sort of EV maximization and strategies and incentives and things like that, that makes sense to poker players. Um, one thing I would always encourage people to remember is that politics is not anything you don't already understand intuitively. If you've ever been to a PTA meeting at a school, if you've ever been to a homeowners association meeting, right? If you've ever been to a meeting in a church basement or at a fraternity house, right? It's the same politics as in Washington. It's not different. All the same people are there, right? And and all the same things happen. And to a first approximation, if you, if you rely on your instincts and your experiences in those situations, you will have a good understanding of sort of the the tensions in sort of national politics in America. It's not any different. And the people up on Capitol Hill aren't wizards. And a lot of times they have no clue what they're doing either. And I've never seen sort of a, a something told me Congress was any different than the PTA meeting. It's all the same things there. Sometimes people say funny things to me. They're like, where do these members of Congress come from? They're just all a bunch of assholes, right? They're all just sort of these egotistical. I'm like, have you ever been 
to a meeting at a little league, right? Like it's the exact same thing. I just like all, all it tells me is that they have not spent any time in sort of hyper local politics because it's the same sort of frustrations and the same sort of group decision-making problems where people don't agree and you have to find a way to work it out, right? And and just like at the PTA or the Little League, there's two ways to work it out. One is to have sort of a calm political meeting where you may win and you may lose and the others have a fist fight. And we don't want fist fights, right? We don't want them in Congress and we don't want them at the PTA meeting. And so you have to deal sort of with, with people who disagree with you. That's a great point. And um, beautiful essay. You mentioned your your blog, Matt's Five Points. That's where you can read, if you'd like to reread it, the Jack Three offsuit and the Monster Ballots poker game. And also see all these articles that Matt was referring to. A lot of great pieces up there, which apparently doing all that writing prepared you to do the piece of that won you the $30,000 pass to play the Poker Stars Players Championship in the Bahamas. We're going to see you there in a couple of weeks. I know you're, you're doing a little bit of preparation. Preflop ranges or a high SPF sunscreen? Both, right? I haven't even thought about that side of it, but absolutely. I was, you know, I'm trying not to take the... Uh... Trying to take the tournament too seriously, right? Like it's just another poker tournament in some sense, and I want to have that mentality. But I have, uh, I have started grinding GTO Wizard a little bit and thinking about that stuff. And I have no idea. I haven't played a live poker tournament in three years. I mean, I've played a regular online home game tournament once a week, but I'm going to go over to uh, MGM here, maybe even as early as tomorrow, and sit down and just play a live poker tournament, just because I had the mechanics of like sitting there and feeling the pacing of levels that are longer and cards that are dealt slower is something that I got to get back into and, and quickly because three weeks from now, it's going to be a lot more important. We'll all be rooting for you, Matt Glassman. He is the winner of the Platinum Hand Poker Stars Players Championship competition. And he gave us a beautiful rendition of Jack Three Offsuit, the tale of Jack Three Offsuit and the Monster Ballads. You can find him at Matt Glassman on Twitter. You actually have a couple of Twitter accounts, right? One is more for your poker and one is for your politics. One's Matt Glassman 312. There's one that gets clogged up with politics stuff. That's at Matt Glassman 312. And then there's one that gets clogged up with poker and bridge stuff. And that's at Matt G 312 cards. Yes. And then of course, Matt Glassman, substack.com. Check him out there as well. And we will see you in the Bahamas at the Poker Stars Players Championships. Thanks so much, Matt, for your beautiful essay, for inspiring people, I think, to think about their home games, maybe create a new one. There's an epidemic of loneliness, people say, right now in the United States. And I think the idea of carving out these like separate spaces for fun and laughter and games is a very timely idea. Thanks for kind of bringing it into the fore. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to seeing you in the Bahamas. Matt Glassman on Jack 3 Offsuit, our platinum poker hand winner. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by Poker Stars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. Never bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve, yeah I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. No, never, never stagger. Believe it, I'm the real thing. Oh.